Welcome, everybody, to the podcast edition of New Mexico in Focus for Friday, April 30th, 2021, the last Friday in April. This year is just flying by for us here at New Mexico in Focus. Hope that you are all staying safe and healthy. I'm Kevin McDonald, the executive producer here at NMIF, and we have a terrific show for you this week. We're going to try something a little different and would love to get your feedback on what you think. We're going to break up the show into a couple of different episodes and uh, maybe a third with some extra stuff for you as well. And uh, just want to know what you think. Would you rather get the entire show's content in one fell swoop, which can get pretty long, over an hour on the regular, or we'll do it and disperse it over the week and uh, maybe it's a little easier to digest in that fashion. So you can always leave us a message here on the podcast. Reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, any of those places. Let us know what you think and how you would like us to do this rolling forward. But we're going to kick things off this week as usual with our line opinion panel. And we have a good one. Uh, joining us via Zoom this week were regular Dee Dee Feldman, former state senator. Also thrilled to welcome back Dan Boyd, the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Albuquerque Journal. Always great to have Dan's thoughts and, and opinions on things. And rounding out the table this week is attorney Ed Perea. So thrilled to have them back. And we're going to kick things off with uh, the news uh, we've talked about this briefly a couple weeks ago. Our host, Gene uh, Grant, ended one of our shows talking about a concerning population survey. This one was done by a moving company, but it showed that our state is losing its young population even as we're gaining residents over the age of 65. And this week we got preliminary population results from the U.S. Census count in, in a new release of information, as well as a LFC, that's a legislative report, uh, also backed up those uh, findings. And of course, that is important because it has all kinds of implications for the state in the next 10 years as we use that census data to make all sorts of funding and policy decisions. So we wanted to jump into that conversation, see what the line panelists think about it, uh, even whether that's a bad thing or not. Senator Feldman's going to talk about how we have talked for years about what is responsible growth, given water supplies, environmental impact, uh, just infrastructure here in New Mexico. But also we know there is a downside to stagnated growth. So let's kick it on over to Gene Grant and the Line Opinion panel for this great conversation. A couple of weeks ago, I closed out the show talking about a concerning population survey by a moving company. It showed New Mexico was losing its young population even as it gained residents over 65. Now, this week's census data and a legislative report bore out those survey findings. They come with all sorts of implications. So here to help us sort them is our line opinion panel. Joining us this week is line regular and former state senator Dee Dee Feldman. Attorney and public safety expert Ed Perea returns. Good to see you, Ed. And Capitol Bureau Chief for the Albuquerque Journal, Dan Boyd, is back for another round. Now, the Legislative Finance Committee report says that state government would be wise to rethink how it delivers services, Dan. And in practical terms, what does that mean? I think that means there's going to be some really tough political uh, decisions on the horizon, especially when it comes to 
things like do you consolidate schools? Do you uh, eliminate certain colleges and universities? I mean, and and obviously folks are going to fight for those in their districts. Um, so I, I think that's going to be some painful decisions um, in the future. Obviously, we don't know for sure how the, how the population will evolve, but at least based on those trends you report, um, currently we've, we've had very modest growth over the last decade, but it looks if it continues like it'll actually start to decline New Mexico's uh, population, which is uh, a daunting you know, um, prospect, and especially given the state's um, looks like it's going to get older and older, and, and the birth rate's going to decline. Mm-hmm. Those, Didi, those three or four things just mentioned are add up to a big problem because we're looking at a 2.83% growth rate over the past decade compared to you know, the rest of the country or the rest of the, you know, even the region. Uh, you know, how, how can we do this? How can we pull this off with declining birth rates and over 65 population booming? What, how does this go forward in a poor state like New Mexico? Well, I, you know, I think Dan has pinpointed where some of the political mm-hmm. um, decisions have to be made, given our declining enrollment and also our um, growing senior population. Uh, we have to, the senior population consumes more resources. They also spend more money. Uh, so in that way, there may be some opportunities there. Um, but, um, you know, some of these trends we've known about for a long time, there's been declining enrollment. Yep. We know that there has been a growth in the seniors. What is the big hit is those uh, people in the middle brackets, the uh, working, uh, working age people, the young families, as you pinpointed in your, in your commentary, they have been victims of um, the 2008 recession and many have left the state for jobs. And, um, and also there's changing lifestyles. I mean, people are not buying homes. Right. Uh, people are not having children. Yep. Uh, uh, when they are uh, in their childbearing years. So um, that, that all bears decisions. But I think there's one thing that we haven't talked about. Okay, we have a 2, 2% growth rate, and that is like causing everyone to uh, sound the alarm. Um, but, you know, there used to be a time when people questioned whether continual growth was a good thing, a good thing for our environment, a good thing for our economy, and and asked, shouldn't we be figuring out how we can uh, come up with a steady state growth, a sustainable kind of growth that still creates jobs, but doesn't destroy everything in its path. Mm-hmm. Was there a number, did he attach to that in your time in the Senate? Had, had someone determined what that proper percentage of growth was? No, okay. no, that's a, that's a philosophical difference. Okay. Uh, people, a lot of people feel that our society must grow very rapidly in order to maintain our standard of living. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a very high standard of living. We consume a lot of resources. And so, um, you know, part of that is problematic when it comes to um, uh, climate change mm-hmm. and, um, and consumption of resources, decline in uh, species sometimes yep. as a result of human activity. Oh, it takes a couple and of growth. degrees. That's right. Just a couple of degrees and nature, nature responds. Hey, Ed, I got to tell you, this was a huge talker on social media for us on Twitter. Uh, let me read you a couple things. Evelina. 
Um, v, just for her last name, said education is a big hurdle. She also listed a number of areas the state should invest, including broadband education. Uh, also was a big one for Brian Wade Boo, who told us it wasn't necessarily the reason he moved his family out of the state, but poor schools are keeping him from coming back to the state. And one last one, a fellow named Jerry Everhart pointed out education as well, in particular coupling it with business in the community for, to form training partnerships and also targeting programs to high need job areas like teachers, of course. It's a lot to chew on there, but what grabs you among those comments? Is there a similarity you're hearing? Whether we're talking about growth or just, you know, maintain the, the, uh, the population status quo, education is critically important. There's no question about it. If we, if we talk growth, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's incredibly important to be attractive to people, uh, other people who want to move into, into our state. Uh, as, the, as the person on Twitter mentioned, you might not move back for, for those reasons. On the other hand, if you're seeking the sort of that steady state population, uh, you want an educated workforce. I mean, right now we are looking at, at such a decline of, uh, of the population under the, age, under the age of 18, but for those uh, who remain in the state who are of, of school age, the quality of our education is important just to continue to, to, to move our state forward, you know, technologically and, and leadership-wise. I think, you know, uh, education is, is key also to, to quality leadership. So uh, either way you want to look at this, education is a, is a key component to moving forward. Good points there. Uh, Dan, let me ask you about this. Uh, you're, you're the demographic the state is after, if I can be so bold, uh, the way you have your life set up. I mean, does this report in the census data ring with you, with your concerns as a husband and a father and think about the future? Yeah, it, it definitely uh, it does. I mean, I've had a number of friends my age who have left uh, New Mexico for jobs in Colorado or other states. And, uh, you know, we've decided to stay and are fortunate to be able to do so and, and love New Mexico. But I think, you know, what both Didi and, and Ed talked about, I mean, if there are not job opportunities for young professionals and not a good education system, I mean, I think a lot of families are going to look elsewhere. And, and I don't think that's a new revelation, but I think it's been hard for New Mexico to to find those job opportunities, even to keep, you know, it's students in the state after they graduate, mm -hmm. even if they do get a quality education, you know, um, you know, whether that's the film industry now with uh, the fledgling cannabis industry, I mean, maybe there's some signs of hope there on the horizon, but, um, you know, not having that really strong kind of private sector like Denver or Austin or places like that, I think it's been hard to compete and hard to uh, keep young folks here. Mm -hmm. Didi, I got one quick one here. Just got a couple of minutes left. One of the things that were, was not stated in the LFC report, but sort of glaring in its, in its obviousness, is losing folks at a very key age in their late 40s and early 50s are also leaving our state. Um, that's a dilemma because these folks are at the height of their skills, at the height of their, you know what I mean? That's a dilemma. And replacing that skill set is going to be another challenge, isn't it? Definitely, mm -hmm. definitely. And I think that... Um, Training programs uh, and, and education, as others have stated, are important. But also, I think New Mexico needs to, to look to see the niches that it can fill. You know, and the niches that it can fill from people perhaps leaving New Jersey, Connecticut, California, because the cost of living is so high, or the, uh, the um, urban nature of those states presents a, a health hazard that nobody thought about. But, but that, that didn't happen in 2020, did it? A lot of those folks just didn't come here at a time when there's a lot of swirl going around in the country. Why is that? 
Well, I mean, we made no effort to attract them. I think we made right. no effort to attract them. Mm -hmm. uh, tourism is down. Uh, but now that people can re can work remotely, um, it seems to me that that's a, a marketing campaign that we have to start mm -hmm. uh, in order to attract that age group. And uh, I think that that age group is very environmentally conscious uh, and could be attracted to our, uh, our great outdoors mm -hmm. and our landscapes. We need to figure out how, absolutely. Out of time on that one, we're talking government transparency when we return and later in the show, the coming changes to New Mexico's pandemic public health plan. Next up is an interview we're thrilled to bring you, one we've been working on for a while. Of course, we know ties, uh, there are New Mexico ties in President Biden's administration, most notably Deb Holland, former first congressional district representative, now Secretary of the Interior, the first Native American to hold that position or any cabinet level position. We have talked about that a lot, but that is not the only local tie to the administration. And uh, it's also not the only Native American tie. And of course, that's extra important because we know that tribes have a unique relationship with the federal government, which is obligated to fulfill Indian trust and treaty responsibilities. And to that end, the Biden administration vowed to uphold tribal sovereignty and work to improve government-to-government -government relationships. And they are not just talking that talk, they are walking that walk. Uh, and uh, one of the folks involved in that is Poway Rivera. His father was a tribal governor, and he is now the White House Advisor on Tribal Affairs. He joined us for a few minutes from Washington, D.C. to talk about his role and more about that commitment from the Biden administration towards our sovereign nations here in New Mexico and beyond. So here now, correspondent Antonia Gonzalez. Howie Rivera, welcome to New Mexico in Focus. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start off by sharing a little bit about what your role is. Sure, well, thanks so much. It's uh, great to, to speak with uh, so many New Mexicans today. Um, I serve in the White House Office of Intergovernmental Affairs as a senior advisor and director of tribal affairs. So working uh, closely with our tribal governments uh, in the Office of Intergovernmental Affairs. And a lot of people in New Mexico may be familiar with your father, um, who has uh, served with the Powake Pueblo for many years, including as governor, and many may know his art sculptures around New Mexico and even across the country. How did his leadership um, role in watching him, how did that impact your career path? Well, certainly it was uh, a, a, having a, my dad was a great uh, uh, role model to have um, growing up and uh, get the exposure to, you know, the importance of our tribal governments uh, in New Mexico and, and working closely with uh, state, local and, and federal partners um, on the issues that are, are facing tribal communities. And so getting to see that um, up close and, and uh, to see the um, strides that our tribal communities have made over the years has, has played a, a great impact in my life and, and the work that um, that I'm able to do now is really informed by my previous experiences of having lived in the Pueblo Pauake grown up and, and uh, living in northern New Mexico. So always appreciative and, and grateful um, from, for that background. 
And as you know, there was much celebration across Indian country when Deb Holland, um, our former Congresswoman here for New Mexico, became Secretary of the Interior, and now Brian Newland, another Native American, being nominated for Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs. Why is representation of Native Americans important in the administration? Well, I think it's incredibly important because uh, people are policy, and having decision makers who come from the lived experiences and, and um, their backgrounds of coming from those communities and actually having a role in the policies that they're helping to shape uh, is invaluable. And um, that's, the, that's the leadership that, is, uh, that the president um, uh, values and, and that's why he uh, has selected Secretary Holland uh, to be a part of his cabinet, to become the first Native American cabinet member because he values the perspectives of um, not only uh, Native American peoples, but also um, bringing in someone like Secretary Holland, who is incredibly experienced and incredibly qualified to lead the department and uh, help to shape um, the administration's goals um, in the Department of Interior. So we're, we're all incredibly proud of Secretary Holland and of uh, uh, Brian, uh, Assistant Secretary Newland, who, sorry, uh, who was uh, nominated, I believe, yesterday officially. So so we're, we're really... Um, you know, looking forward to um, the way that our administration is shaping up and really proud of what we've been able to accomplish over um, the 100 days uh, coming up here in, in a few days. And there are many, many issues important to tribes across the United States, um, from Alaska all the way across the here, including in New Mexico. But COVID-19 continues and still is a priority for tribes. Um, what is the administration doing right now to address recovery, uh, funding, healthcare, anything dealing with even economic development um, and dealing with COVID-19 recovery for American Indians and Alaska Natives? Absolutely, no, COVID-19, the pandemic has disproportionately impacted tribal communities across the country and, and really, um, you know, we, we've seen the devastating impact to not only vulnerable community members, to, but to many elders and, and uh, people in our communities who, who bear our cultures and speak our languages. So, you know, getting the pandemic under control in Indian country is the top priority, uh, the top priority of, of the president's uh, from day one. And, uh, you know, from day one, the president established the White House uh, COVID response team, which takes a whole of government approach to addressing the pandemic and, um, you know, ensuring that Indian country is a, a big part of that, uh, especially in the um, American Rescue Plan, $31.2 billion going to Indian country, uh, and part of that uh, assistance going directly to COVID response. So last week we were pleased to announce um, you know, $4 billion to fight the pandemic in Indian country, including funding uh, tribal health systems, increasing vaccinations, and, and really making sure that we're providing the relief to our communities that are that have been hit hard. And President Biden has committed to respecting tribal sovereignty and building relationships with tribes. Key members of the administration have already met with Native Americans. Secretary Holland traveled to the Southwest and met with Pueblo leaders here in New Mexico. And the First Lady of the United States is currently on the Navajo Nation. Um, the second gentleman has made various meetings, including with some Pueblo leaders here in New Mexico and other areas of the country. Uh, talk to talk a little bit about why that's happening. 
Well, I think, you know, from, from day one, uh, the president has made clear that working with Indian country and giving Indian country a seat at the table is important to him. And he's made that clear to uh, his entire cabinet and, and his entire administration. Um, I feel fortunate to, to be able to be a part of that and, and having trips like the First Ladies to Navajo Nation, where she's spending, you know, two days, you know, meeting with tribal leaders, uh, visiting vaccination sites, tribal schools, and having the second gentleman's trips to the Yakima Nation in Washington and, and also to visit the Kiwa Pueblo to visit their health center there, I think really helps to inform um, our leaders, our, our principals um, about the needs of Indian country and, and that, you know, that they're carrying the, the message of the administration to Indian country, but also uh, showing the commitment of the administration to meet Indian country where, uh, where they are uh, and to really make sure that tribal leaders um, have have the uh, opportunity to interact and engage with uh, our top um, our top leaders and the, and the leaders in the administration to fulfill the nation to nation relationship. Powie Rivera, thank you so much for joining us here on New Mexico in Focus. Thank you so much for having me, Antonia. All right, time to head right back to the line opinion roundtable and a story you may have seen this week. If you haven't, we encourage you to go read it. Story broken by Searchlight New Mexico uh, about the Children, Youth, and Families Department. It is one of the most important uh, government agencies in New Mexico charged with safeguarding vulnerable children and families across our state. And it is a department that often comes with major scrutiny and uh, often means that those at the top of CYFD are, are pretty uncomfortable and they're dealing with a lot of sensitive and complicated information. This searchlight report did raise eyebrows, though, when reporter Ed Williams pointed out that the agency he had learned was using the app Signal to encrypt communications during the pandemic. And he also found out that the agency has admitted to deleting some communications Therefore, if there is a records request, an IPRA request from the media or the public, uh, there would be a lot that is left out or compromised. Republicans, not surprisingly, have seized upon the report, and Attorney General Hector Balderas has announced he is launching an investigation into this. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that now with the Line Opinion Roundtable. And uh, Dee Dee Feldman, a big open government uh, supporter and advocate herself. She's got a lot to say here. And Ed Perea, with his legal background, uh, talks a lot about how this would hold up in court if there was a challenge there. Just a lot of complicated things to talk about there. You want to protect the privacy of these most vulnerable and youngest in our population, but also balance that with the public's right to know how our government is using our tax dollars and conducting our business. So right now, here we go back to the line and Gene Grant. The Department of Children, Youth and Families has one of the most important jobs in the state government, that of safeguarding vulnerable children and families. It comes with intense scrutiny, the kind that is often uncomfortable for top administrators. So more than a few eyebrows were raised this week when Searchlight New Mexico's Ed Williams reported the agency has been using the app Signal to encrypt communications during the pandemic. The agency has also admitted to deleting communications. Now Republicans have seized upon this report and Attorney General Hector Balderas is investigating. Indeed, much of what COAFD does is shielded by privacy for its clients. We all know that, but attorneys 
Searchlight consultants say it's a chilling practice. Why does the agency, just first of all, why does the agency need to keep those messages? Well, I, I don't really understand the agency's argument, so mm -hmm. I'm probably not the one to ask on that. But um, I think that their argument is that, you know, they're prote protecting sensitive case files, information again about children uh, that should not fall into the wrong hands. However, the problem is that these are public records and um, they, um, they need to at minimum be preserved. Um, it, they might be encrypted, but the, there are two things here, the encryption and the destruction. Mm -hmm. The destruction of these automatically after the communication has been made is very, it's very problematic. I mean, even just in, in, in terms of uh, keeping public records for the archive of history mm -hmm. uh, and the state library. Um, it's, uh, it's not possible when they are destroyed automatically. So uh, they, they uh, indicated that this was a convenience to them because of COVID, mm -hmm. but always as an open government advocate, um, we ought to ask what, what are they hiding? What is it they are hiding here? Um, and some of it may be sensitive information, but remember the information used by the public and the and reporters uh, through IPRA requests is usually is usually based in identifying some issue. It's not in revealing a, a personal case, mm -hmm. but it's identifying a pattern of child abuse or uh, foster care. Um, or uh, uh, grandparents' custody of, uh, of uh, children that, have, that are no longer in the custody of their parents. Mm -hmm. um, and that information, if it's hidden, uh, really hinders policymaking. Interesting points there, wow. Um, Dan, Brian Blaylock, the COAFD secretary you know, says if they didn't delete messages and shred other communications, they'd run out of space. But I, gotta re I don't recall seeing that provision as an exemption in the state public records law that they ran out of space and so it's okay to destroy things. And I think that might maybe an issue that technology is outpacing the uh, open mm -hmm. records laws. Um, you know, now with so many people communicating via text, via signal or these other kind of apps, you know, um, mm -hmm. that, I think that is a concern like, like Didi mentioned. And I think how the question of how wide, widespread this is in, in state government is still unknown. I mean, Clearly, CYFD has been using it, but you know whether other agencies are using similar kind of apps or tools like that to communicate. Uh, on the one hand, I understand that the people are working remotely and, and need to be in touch with each other, but I agree that it, it's incredibly troubling, you know, to have these records that are being automatically deleted and, and not have access to them for the public and and for um, the media like us to mm -hmm. to review them and to you know to look at them and and, and use our our best judgment on, on what might be newsworthy. Sure, absolutely. Hey, Ed Perea, maintaining records, it's time consuming, undoubtedly requires either literal or virtual space as we kid here, but do people, do courts sympathize with this in your best judgment or is just a bad look? I, I think it's highly problematic on, on the face of it. And I don't think it'll pass judicial muster. I, I, think, uh, I think, you know, these are government agencies mm -hmm. and the government agencies and its employees answer to uh, the taxpayers. And, and I think over the course of the past several uh, decades, 
transparency has been on the top of the list of concerns yep. and really the expectation of the, of the public. So I can see this going before the court. Uh, and there are a lot of issues involving transparency, transparency, especially when you look at the mission of this particular agency. CYFD, it's so critically important that there is full transparency and, and, and there has to be some level of oversight. I understand the arguments. I don't believe at this point, based upon what I'm, uh, what I'm seeing and, and reading, that these arguments are going to hold up in court. I, mm-hmm. I think transparency mm-hmm. is, gonna, is ultimately going to uh-huh. hold the day. Uh, just because um, the, the public has a right to know what its agencies, what its government agencies are doing. So it's more to come, but I don't expect the courts to uphold this sort of, of communication uh, that's taking place with CYFD. But of course, more to come. Ed, I got a question. You know, is there a reasonable middle here? I mean, is there a point where you don't have to keep records after a certain amount of time? I wonder if there's another you know, situation on the state agency that they might be able to follow, say like if they were three years old, 10 years old, is there a reasonable time to get rid of, of some of these things if issues of, you know, keeping these around are an issue? Is, is that reasonable? Well, there's always the exceptions, right? And it depends on the issue. You know, in, mm-hmm. in court cases, some of these court cases can go on for, for decades. So, and mm-hmm. especially when it involves, involves children and, and again, the mission of CYFD, uh, I would think that the court would expect these records to be held onto for uh, an indefinite period of time. If that if that means 30 or 40 years, maybe it does. But I think when we're talking short term, uh, I don't think that that serves the the interest of this uh, of transparency. Is ultimately what I think we're uh, the the, uh, the taxpayers and its citizens are expecting from its government agencies. Yeah. Didi, we've got about a minute here, but I, I mentioned Republicans have seized on this. They were awfully quiet, however, when Susana Martinez used private email to conduct private, uh, bu- uh, sorry, public business. This kind of thing does happen because New Mexico's transparency laws are toothless. Is that why? Or is this just everyone decides on their own to freelance these things? Everyone decides on their own to freelance. I think that's a good, uh, I think that's a good <laughs> summary of it. Mm-hmm. And of course, Uh, The Republicans are seizing on this as a political issue. The Democrats are seizing on this as a political issue in the in the prior administration. The attorney general should be investigating this Um, and our watchdog groups, uh, New Mexico Ethics Watch, FOG and others should be really monitoring this because um, this this. you know, this is important for the public. It, it seems like a, a sort of arcane issue, but it really goes to um, the public's right to know uh, what is being done in its name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this case, two children by the government. Yep. And I think that's pretty important. Good point there. Hey, Dan, real quick. Uh, Governor Lujan Grisham hasn't commented on this. Uh, on this. Can she avoid it or might this be the kind of story that only gets a little bit worse the longer it's ignored. Yeah, I think that there will be questions to her about whether other agencies are also doing this. Um, uh, we'll see, obviously, what the AG or, or some of the other groups kind of uh, come up with and what those investigations lead to. But I, I think this could be the kind of thing that has some legs. And uh, I think it does kind of bring into question a public trust in government, you know, and how much of it is happening behind closed doors or where people can't access. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're just talking dumping texts and things like that, I mean, 
I don't know, I can get two terabytes worth of information on a little plug-in <laughs> C-clip, so we'll have to see how that goes. We'll keep an eye on this for sure, but we're out of time, though. A closer look at the, at the new COVID response when this group comes back. So again, we're going to leave it there for this week, but we will have more for you from this week's show in a future episode. Coming up there, we're going to be talking about local reaction to the murder trial and convictions of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in Chauvin, sorry, in the murder of George Floyd. Of course, that set off a slew of protests last summer and um it also led to reform in lots of states, including here in New Mexico, where we passed the Civil Rights Act, which really gets at doing away with qualified immunity and added layer of protection for police officers, it would make it hard for them to have uh, criminal complaints brought against them in court. We have got a group of civil rights attorneys coming in to talk about that. Really fascinating conversation. We even have some extra content there for you on that coming up. We'll also have more from this line opinion roundtable responding to some of the other big news of the past week, which was changes to the state's COVID response and a date thrown out by the governor to potentially reopen entirely based on vaccination rates and getting closer to that dubious herd immunity that we have heard and talked so much about. So again, we'll have all of that coming your way, plus some extra things as well. But look for that in the next few days. And for now, we hope you have a terrific weekend. You stay safe. You stay healthy. Get outdoors. Enjoy some great weather, everyone. And we will talk to you again soon.